0: Welcome to Crime Time with Maggie Sten. What you're going to be listening to is a series of episodes called The Times Aren't a Changing, They Have Changed. Hey! Today we're going to talk about unexplained wealth. With me is Greg Jones Barrister and I have a lot of questions to ask him about unexplained wealth. For those of you who don't know Greg, Greg Jones specialises in proceeds of crime and crime commission proceedings. He's written papers for the Australian Federal Police, the New South Wales Police and various international law enforcement agencies. Greg, you're the go-to barrister when one is prosecuted for what the authorities claim is unexplained wealth or put another way, the proceeds of crime. Well, I
1: could say that would be right, except for one thing, and that is that the authorities don't actually prosecute people for proceeds of crime. And that's the big misconception about it all, because they aren't criminal proceedings. They're all civil proceedings, so they, they take a civil suit against you. Now, I suppose you could say they're being prosecuted civilly, but the emphasis about that is it's all about the money.
0: So, put another way, in layman's terms, instead of giving you a charge sheet, they give you a summons.
1: That's exactly right. And instead
0: of you going to jail, they take all your money.
1: That's their objective.
0: Right. You've now been a barrister for 25 years.
1: Yep, that'd be right.
0: All right, let's go through some of your early life. You were born in Wollongong. That's correct. And I believe you went to a Catholic school in Wollongong?
1: Well, I went to school in Wollongong. I ended up going to Wollongong High School for year 11 and 12, and uh I completed my schooling down there. And um as soon as I finished that, that was around 82. And I think right around that point in time, the steelworks had just put off 25,000 people. And Wollongong was effectively in a depression. And, uh, but I, I remember I got myself a job when I left school.
0: Well, school. before you left school, let's go back to your school days. You went to a public school. Didn't you also go to a Catholic school? Well,
1: I went to a Catholic school. Obviously, I wasn't the most attractive kid in town. Uh, the, the local priest obviously didn't put it, didn't put the hard word on me like he did a lot of other people at the time. So, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. I, I really haven't had a lot to do with that, except uh, I think down there, back in Wollongong, in those days, it was quite different to the way life is now. In
0: and that's exactly what we want to hear about. What was the diff? What's the difference? And did it depend on where you lived and what school you went to? Um, no, I, uh,
1: Wollongong was a funny sort of town. No, you, the industry down there was. Um, Clearly, you, your dad either worked at the steelworks or went down a coal mine. That was, it was unusual. Um, and you, a, e-
0: and you either went to a Catholic school or a state school? Well,
1: you went to a Catholic school. I went to a state school and it really didn't matter what school you went to. Um, I only ended up going to Wollongong High because, uh, really my dad sent me down a coal mine when I was 14 years of age and, uh, that really emphasised two things to me. One is I needed to improve my marks at school, and two what, is you didn't I didn't like the coal mine. I need to improve them rapidly. If you ever been <laughs> down a coal mine once, you'll never go back down there again. There was rats down there as big as this table. How they got down there? You know, six or seven kilometres underground. It's cold, it's wet, and it's dark. And well, they're probably the good features.
0: Do you think Charles Dickens had ever gone down one?
1: I've got no idea about Charles Dickens, but all I know is that, uh, it really emphasized to me that, um, either I improved my education, I was, and by at 14 years of age, all I was interested in is riding surfboards and playing football. So.
0: Right. A little birdie told me that you used to get beaten up at school. Well, no. For those people (laughs) who can't see Greg, he's well over six foot and doesn't look like the sort of person today that would get beaten up.
1: No, but so please I, explain. Well, no, but I, I lived in a neighbourhood which you know, was a fairly low social, social social, economic demographic and I went to the Catholic school which is about three kilometres away and I had to ride my push bike past the local public school every day.
0: Which meant that was full of Protestants.
1: That was full of Protestants and you really had to ride your push bike quite fast to get past these kids because they wanted a piece of you real quick. Uh, now, they'd get their way away one way or the other, but as a general rule, those sort of things in Wollongong were sorted out on a football field on a Saturday morning, and um that's the way it went. So And
0: they were, for those people who are relatively young, we're talking about the 60s and the 70s, and they weren't the politically correct year- times that we have now. And in fact you probably should have moved to a Catholic neighbourhood because in those days didn't they have that saying, Catholic, Catholic, ring the bell, proddy, proddy, go to hell?
1: Well, I'm really not too sure about that in, indeed. But it's funny, though, we think back on it and where I come from in Wollongong, no, there, was, there was, well, I'll give you an example. I'd never, I didn't. Never met a Jewish person. I didn't know there was a difference in a Jewish culture. I didn't know anything about that. I'd never met a Lebanese person. I didn't know anything about that. I knew one person of Indigenous background who was just one of nature's gentlemen, and the only Asian person in town was the fellow owner of the Chinese
0: restaurant. Um, Thank God for that. You got some decent food.
1: Our community was just uh, Greek and Italian people, and everybody worked out the steelworks. There was another community of – uh, Macedonians and Serbs and they also worked out but they live further south down um, probably close to where um, uh, Albion Park close to that that area down there.
0: Alright so you finished your HSC at Wollongong High?
1: Finished that at Wollongong High 1982 and then uh, said I got a scholarship at Westpac To um, go and work in the bank, but that didn't really work out real well because they weren't. It was the first ever one of those, and they really didn't know whether they had to work in the bank or go to university. And
0: so, which one did you do?
1: Well, and then they said, "Well, we'll try and find a midpoint. You go to university some days and work in the bank the other days." And that just didn't work out. Nothing was working out with that. And um, at the time. I was keen to broaden my horizons and as I said Wollongong was in a state of depression at that point in time so um I applied to join the I applied to join both the state police and the Australian Federal Police and uh, the acceptance to the Australian Federal Police came around rapidly but at that point in time
0: they hadn't been set up very long at that point had
1: they The, the AFP came into existence in 1979 and they but they were desperate to get staff because at that point in time, they had a lot of obligations that revolved around um, family law court and protection of family law court judges, and also the the difficulties that they had providing um, protection for dignitaries such as those associated with the um, Turkish embassy.
0: And but for generally in the community, they were called the plastics.
1: That's yeah. That's exactly right. I remember having to give evidence once about that in a trial um, and it was well known back then and to some extent still now that the state police refer to the federal police as the plastic police.
0: And wasn't it also the case that they were so desperate for people that they didn't have the height and weight requirements the state police had? I'm not too sure about that, but I I do know that I snuck through. Not on I was fine
1: for height and weight, and I was fine for everything else. But um, I do know one thing that I had terrible eyesight back then, and I was short sighted. I, I couldn't see no, literally no, twenty feet in front of me. Um, I didn't know that, and I no, we didn't have funds back then as a kid down in Wollongong to go and see an optometrist to get your eyes checked, so you just lived with it. But it was uh, slightly amusing because getting towards the end of uh, my recruit course back in 1984, I had a problem. And my problem was that I couldn't shoot a firearm. And Great for a policeman. <laughs> yeah. But I was very fortunate. There was an inspector in charge of the um, Federal Police Recruit School down there, uh, Tony Howard, his name was. And he said to me, uh, really, he said, look, I've been through all your paperwork because normally if you can't shoot a firearm straight, you can't pass. And I was—I th- think I was the first ever federal police recruit who was permitted to pass without a firearm certificate because he said to me, look, you've started a commerce degree and you, you can, obviously, you, I'd passed first year account in that point in time. He said, are you interested in doing this proceeds of crime work? I said, why are you asked that? He said, well, I think you better be because you can't shoot a gun. <laughs> And at that point in time, I was desperate to get my firearms license because if you get your firearms license, all of a sudden you can go out there and you can put a leather jacket on and look like Don Johnson. Well, I graduated from the police college and they gave me a calculator and a cardigan and said, "Do your best."
0: And you didn't look like Don Johnson. Uh,
1: well, I, well, I didn't. I didn't get the uh, the leather jacket, and um,
0: isn't the irony of that that at the same time, Mark Stanton. Who was at one point very high up in the crime commission?
1: Uh, well, no, at that point in time. Oh, no, I- he, at
0: that point in time, he was a federal police officer. He
1: was, he was a federal police officer and he was the youngest ever inspector in the Australian Federal Police, highly regarded. Um, and I still distinctly recall, so I joke about the leather jacket, but I still distinctly recall, um, meeting up with him in the TNT Towers at Redfern when I first came up from uh, Canberra back in 1984, and uh, they'd just been out and done their drug investigation job, whatever they were doing. He had his leather jacket on and he had his gun share showing, and I thought he just looked like Don Johnson to me.
0: Well, I know Mark Stanton, he's a very short Don Johnson.
1: Yeah, back then in 1984, no, I was just a young constable, I was what, 19 years of age, and uh, all of a sudden that's what I was confronted by, but unfortunately the path that I had to go down was uh, put my cardigan on, get my calculator out and do my best.
0: Well, again, for those listeners who don't know who Mark Stanton was, the irony of this is that we are now sitting in Greg Jones' chambers um, in Martin Place overlooking the city while Mark Stanton, I believe, is still sitting in jail. Well,
1: yeah, the time's changed. He joined the uh, – after he left the AFP, he joined the uh, New South Wales Crime Commission and then, um, yeah, subsequently he went on trial for – um I think there was a huge importation. Uh, in, well, I don't, I'm not too sure whether drugs actually found their way in Australia, but it was a alleged importation or being involved in to a conspiracy. Important. Import um, yeah. It was convicted, and um, yeah, unfortunately, that was the path that his life's taken him. But um, back in 1984, I, know I had a different view of him only because um, he was what everybody wanted to spy to. He was to. the man. He was the uh, Him and Alan Tassiak, the he was the. Alan was the uh, detective sergeant at the time, and um, and Mark Standen was the uh, young, as I said, youngest ever inspector that I knew of in the Australian Federal Police.
0: Okay, so you're in the Australian Federal Police with your calculator and your cardigan. What did they give you to do?
1: Well, what did they give me? I can tell you, I was fairly straightforward. They uh, they put me in an outstation, and what's um, an outstation? Well, I really, I wasn't associated with the mainstream police and uh my primary objective was to do um, deal with this proceeds of crime which nobody wanted to be involved in nobody really understood but
0: let's just go back a bit when did that legislation begin
1: the Proceeds of Crime Act 1987 was really the first one to come through. All right,
0: well, we're talking a well before then, aren't we? A little,
1: a little early. Well, I joined the AFP in 84. Right. And uh, then I came up from Sydney and there was um, a, a transition phase. I remember I, I worked at down in Wollongong for a while. I worked in uh, witness protection. I worked up in Portland Street, Dover Heights. Um, soon I worked for the... Um,
0: no, Turkish I probably, ambassador. I probably saw you outside my yeah. window. Yeah,
1: soon, soon after he was uh, murdered in Portland Street, Dover Heights, Um, doing witness protection there. So you, there was a whole range of things, and you also had to do your uh, – Family law court judge, the whole range of things that the AFP were doing back then.
0: Again, for those people who don't know, in the early 80s, there was, I can't remember the man's name. Do you remember his name? He's been prosecuted and sent to jail recently. The, the bombings of the family court. Yeah, the
1: family court judges. Um, yeah, the actual, the, the name of the person. A I couple don't. of
0: judges died and, um, a couple have their houses bombed. So that's what Greg's referring to. Yep. So, um, which had never happened in Australia. Yeah.
1: And so that was uh, a few years of doing all of that. And then all of a sudden in 1987, the um, Proceeds of Crime Act came in. And that's one of the f- first, it came in a little bit before that, but it was, it's termed the Proceeds of Crime Act 1987. And, uh, it was the start of something that, um, really hadn't been involved with the, criminal justice system for many years there'd been some sort of proceeds of crime aspect of things but uh, there'd really until the proceeds of crime act 1987 the focus was always on people being prosecuted criminally
0: do you think that um bringing in that act was a copy of the rico act in america um no
1: it really it it emanated, as I understand it, uh, to a large extent, out of um, a, a number of acts out of Florida and um, California. Um, the exact um, how it all came to be, um, you'd probably have to research deep down into second reading the speeches idea in the, 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 idea, the idea was the same. The idea was the same. But, and there is a big but, and that is, uh, these early acts were all conviction-based.
0: Yeah.
1: So um, for the first first priority and number one priority was to get a conviction, prosecute a person criminally, mm-hmm. and then priority number two was to prosecute them civilly.
0: Oh. And weren't you instrumental together with Mick Feeland, who at the time was the boss of the NCA or the National Crime Authority?
1: Well, um no, Mick was only a – he was a constable or maybe a, yeah, he, but- he might have been just been promoted to sergeant. He came up from Melbourne and I came uh, – we started here in Sydney. It would have been about 1989 that we started up the first ever proceeds of crime branch for the Australian Federal Police. And I remember the uh, – I think um, Andy Wells was the commander of the AFP at the time and I think um, uh, Bill Harrigan was the inspector and um Mick then went on to become the um I think he is the now Commissioner of the Australian Crime Commission. And um
0: The Australian Crime Commission is the name today of what then was the National Crime yeah, Authority.
1: The old NCA. And uh and that was where it all started from, no, really back in those early days and you think about some of those early cases and really can't be emphasised any better than I think that very early case back in the late 80s of Bruce Snapper Cornwall, where he's recorded on the listening device saying, I don't care what they take as long as they don't take what I work so hard for. Unfortunately for Bruce, I don't think he'd ever lodged a tax return. And um, in those circumstances, there was fairly good grounds to prosecute Mr
0: Cornwall, for his um, ill-gotten gains. I remember well the case you're talking about because Mario's was the go-to restaurant in those days and Bruce Snapper Cornwall would get a lot of his messages sent through their fax machine because he would lunch there often and leave $2,000 tips and they would have snappers on the menu today. Yeah. Well, as I said, he, um. And that's public knowledge because it was all in the brief hmm. of evidence that came out in a court. Yeah. And it's about that point in time.
1: There was, there was other people coming through. I think there was the, um, the trial of, um, for the importation, I think of the cannabis resin. I think it was Ian Saxon, uh, Carp uh, and, um, Dr. Paltos.
0: Yes. And are uh, very again, bad cannabis.
1: That, that was, um, yeah, the cannabis
0: resin, which they eventually uh, was located out at uh, Malabar Tip. Yeah. Bruce Snapper Cornwall was also involved in a cannabis importation in the early 90s with about, I think, six or seven other co-accused. And, again, I remember that very well because the guy whose name I can't remember who they had listening, he was the lookout. He was deaf so that was pretty useful on a ship
1: well and uh, one he was death and uh, it comes brings me back to strangely enough the uh, the importation done by um, saxon and pautos of the cannabis resin they had a, it came in on a boat and the boat went out to sea and the bloke who was driving the boat as it came through the heads he couldn't see properly. He had big Coke bottle glasses. I'm just trying to think of his name now. He was a member down at the Bronte Surf Club. And the only reason I knew that is some many years later, he was. Um, I met up with him, had a beer with him. and uh, and uh, Yeah, but he he was blind as a bat, for want of a better term.
0: So you're now in the Australian Federal Police. You're in the Proceeds of Crime Unit. How long were you there for?
1: I... Stayed there for probably only from about, um, it would have been only a number of years, a few years before I was approached, strangely enough, by, um, and I think back then may have been aspiring silk, might have just taken silk, um, Clive Stern and, uh, Bruce Stratton. And I'm not
0: too sure which case it was. Well, Bruce Stratton would have been at that point, uh, um, a silk for quite oh, some yeah, time. Yeah, Bruce, and, Bruce was a silk. I, and Clive was an
1: aspiring silk yeah, at the time. and. And it might have been a matter you were involved in, but I, I remember just being down at the court there, and, um, and we'd issued restraining orders against these people's property. And uh, at that point in time, under the Proceeds of Crime Act 1987, there was a provision which would permit a person to access their assets for their legal expenses. And I'm just standing around, and I... Can still, I stop
0: you there? Had you done law at this point because you haven't done
1: No, no, no. I, I hadn't done – You're still
0: the police officer with a commerce degree.
1: Uh, in a I, I, I I commenced law I- about 1991. Right. And um,
0: – I and remember I, the case you're talking about and it was 1991.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I, I commenced my law degree then and
0: um, – It was three guys.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, so, and um, I remember Bruce uh, approached me in his laconic way and uh, – and said, you know a bit about this, uh, legislation. I said, oh, yes, yes, Mr. Stratton, yes, sir. And I, and, um, he said, you're possibly interested in coming to the bar. And I'd ask him, well, really what the bar was. I had no idea. I didn't have the faintest idea. I was only, uh, maybe had another year or two to go on my law degree. And, and I said, and it's after, after I made a few inquiries and then, um, so life, kept on going on, and I told them how it all operated. And then um, when I finished my law degree, uh, again, same situation, um, uh, Bruce Stratton and Clive Stern approached me and said, are you keen to come to the bar now? And I I was certainly keen, and um, they made a room for me here.
0: Let's stop there. We'll go to part two of your life next week.